Chapters 5 to 7 of Book 4 of Toilers of the Sea, Part 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Paul Adams. Toilers of the Sea, Part 1, Sierre Clubin, by Victor Hugo. Translated by W. Moy Thomas. Book 4, The Bagpipe. Chapter 5. A Deserved Success Has Always Its Detractors At this period the affairs of Mess Lethierry were in this position. The Durand had well fulfilled all his expectations. He had paid his debts, repaired his misfortunes, discharged his obligations at Brem, met his acceptances at Saint-Malo. He had paid off the mortgage upon his house at the Braves, and had brought up all the little local rent charges upon the property he was also the proprietor of a great productive capital this was the durande herself the net revenue from the boat was about a thousand pounds sterling per annum and the traffic was constantly increasing strictly speaking the durande constituted his entire fortune she was also the fortune of the island the carriage of cattle being one of the most profitable portions of her trade he had been obliged in order to facilitate the stowage and the embarking and disembarking of animals to do away with the luggage-boxes and the two boats it was perhaps imprudent the durande had but one boat namely her long-boat but this was an excellent one Ten years had elapsed since Rantaine's robbery. This prosperity of the Durande had its weak point. It inspired no confidence. People regarded it as a risk. Lethierry's good fortune was looked upon as exceptional. He was considered to have gained by a lucky rashness. Some one in the Isle of Wight who had imitated him had not succeeded. The enterprise had ruined the shareholders. The engines, in fact, were badly constructed, but people shook their heads. Innovations have always to contend with a difficulty that few wish them well. The least false step compromises them. One of the commercial oracles of the Channel Islands, a certain banker from Paris, named Jauge, being consulted upon a steamboat speculation, was reported to have turned his back with the remark, "'An investment is it you propose to me?' exactly an investment in smoke on the other hand the sailing vessels had no difficulty in finding capitalists to take shares in a venture capital in fact was obstinately in favour of sails and as obstinately against boilers and paddle-wheels at guernsey the durande was indeed a fact but steam was not yet an established principle such is the fanatical spirit of conservatism in opposition to progress they said of lethierry it is all very well but he could not do it a second time far from encouraging his example inspired timidity nobody would have dared to risk another durand chapter six the sloop cashmere saves a shipwrecked crew the equinoctial gales begin early in the channel. The sea there is narrow, and the winds disturb it easily. The westerly gales begin from the month of February, and the waves are beaten about from every quarter. Navigation becomes an anxious matter. 
the people on the coasts look to the signal-post and begin to watch the vessels in distress the sea is then like a cut-throat in ambush for his victim an invisible trumpet sounds the alarm of war with the elements furious blasts spring up from the horizon and a terrible wind soon begins to blow the dark night whistles and howls in the depth of the clouds the black tempest distends its cheeks and the storm arises the wind is one danger the fogs are another fogs have from all time been the terror of mariners in certain fogs microscopic prisms of ice are found in suspension to which mariotte attributes halos mock suns and paracelines storm fogs are of a composite character various gases of unequal specific gravity combine with the vapour of water and arrange themselves layer over layer in an order which divides the dense mist into zones below ranges the iodine above the iodine is the sulphur above the sulphur the brome above the brome the phosphorus this in a certain manner and making allowance for electric and magnetic tension explains several phenomena as the st elmo's fire of columbus and magellan the flying stars moving about the ships of which seneca speaks the two flames castor and pollux mentioned by plutarch the roman legion whose spears appear to caesar to take fire the peak of the chateau of duino in friuli which the sentinel made to sparkle by touching it with his lance and perhaps even those fulgurations from the earth which the ancients called satan's terrestrial lightnings at the equator an immense mist seems permanently to encircle the globe it is known as the cloud ring the function of the cloud ring is to temper the heat of the tropics as that of the gulf stream is to mitigate the coldness of the pole under the cloud ring fogs are fatal they are what is called horse latitudes it was here that navigators of bygone ages were accustomed to cast their horses into the sea to lighten the ship in stormy weather and to economize the fresh water when becalmed columbus said nube abaxo ex muerte death lurks in the low cloud the etruscans who bear the same relation to meteorology which the chaldeans did to astronomy had two high priests the high priest of the thunder and the high priest of the clouds the fulgurators observed the lightning and the weather sages watched the mists the college of priest augurs was consulted by the syrians the phoenicians the pelasgi and all the primitive navigators of the ancient mare internum the origin of tempests was from that time forward partially understood it is intimately connected with the generation of fogs and is properly speaking the same phenomenon there exist upon the ocean three regions of fogs one equatorial and two polar the mariners give them but one name the pitch-pot in all latitudes and particularly in the channel the equinoctial fogs are dangerous they shed a sudden darkness over the sea one of the perils of fogs even when not very dense arises from their preventing the mariners perceiving the change of the bed of the sea by the variations of the colour of the water the result is a dangerous concealment of the approach of sands and breakers
the vessel steers towards the shoals without receiving any warning frequently the fogs leave a ship no resource except to lie to or to cast anchor there are as many shipwrecks from the fogs as from the winds after a very violent squall succeeding one of these foggy days the mail-boat cashmere arrived safely from england it entered at st peter's port as the first gleam of day appeared upon the sea and at the very moment when the cannon of castle cornet announced the break of day the sky had cleared the sloop cashmere was anxiously expected as she was to bring the new rector of st sampson a little after the arrival of the sloop a rumour ran through the town that she had been hailed during the night at sea by a longboat containing a shipwrecked crew chapter seven how an idler had the good fortune to be seen by a fisherman on that very night at the moment when the wind abated gilliatt had gone out with his nets without however taking his famous old dutch boat too far from the coast as he was returning with the rising tide towards two o'clock in the afternoon the sun was shining brightly and he passed before the beast's horn to reach the little bay of the bout de la rue at that moment he fancied that he saw in the projection of the guildholm seat a shadow which was not that of the rock he steered his vessel nearer and was able to perceive a man sitting in the guildholmer the sea was already very high the rock encircled by the waves an escape entirely cut off gilliatt made signs to the man the stranger remained motionless gilliatt drew nearer the man was asleep he was attired in black he looks like a priest thought gilliatt he approached still nearer and could distinguish the face of a young man the features were unknown to him the rock happily was peaked there was a good depth gilliatt wore off and succeeded in skirting the rocky wall the tide raised the bark so high that gilliatt by standing upon the gunwale of the sloop could touch the man's feet he raised himself upon the planking and stretched out his hands if he had fallen at that moment it is doubtful if he would have risen again on the water the waves were rolling in between the boat and the rock and destruction would have been inevitable he pulled the foot of the sleeping man ho there what are you doing in this place the man aroused and muttered i was looking about he was now completely awake and continued i have just arrived in this part i came this way on a pleasure trip i have passed the night on the sea the view from here seemed beautiful i was weary and fell asleep ten minutes later and you would have been drowned ha jump into my bark gilliatt kept the bark fast with his foot clutched the rock with one hand and stretched out the other to the stranger in black who sprang quickly into the boat he was a fine young man gilliatt seized the tiller and in two minutes his boat entered the bay of the bout de la rue the young man wore a round hat and a white cravat and his long black frock coat was buttoned up to the neck he had fair hair which he wore en courant he had a somewhat feminine cast of features a clear eye a grave manner 
Meanwhile, the boat had touched the ground. Gilliatt passed the cable through the mooring ring, then turned and perceived the young man holding out a sovereign in a very white hand. Gilliatt moved the hand gently away. There was a pause. The young man was the first to break the silence. "'You have saved me from death,' perhaps,' replied Gilliatt. The moorings were made fast, and they went ashore. The stranger continued, "'I owe you my life, sir. No matter.' The reply from Gilliatt was again followed by a pause. "'Do you belong to this parish?' "'No,' replied Gilliatt. "'To what parish, then?' Gilliatt lifted up his right hand, pointed to the sky, and said, "'To that yonder.' The young man bowed and left him. After walking a few paces, the stranger stopped, felt in his pocket, drew out a book, and returning toward Gilliatt, offered it to him. Permit me to make you a present of this. Gilliatt took the volume. It was a Bible. An instant after, Gilliatt, leaning upon the parapet, was following the young man with his eyes, as he turned the angle of the path which led to Saint-Sampson. By little and little he lowered his gaze, forgot all about the stranger, knew no more whether the Guildholm-er existed. Everything disappeared before him, in the bottomless depth of a reverie. There was one abyss which swallowed up all his thought. This was Deruchette. A voice calling him aroused him from this dream. "'Ho there, Gilliatt!' He recognized the voice and looked up. "'What is the matter, Sieur Landoys?' It was, in fact, Sieur Landoys, who was passing along the road about one hundred paces from the Bout de la Rue in his phaeton, drawn by one little horse. He had stopped to hail Gilliatt, but he seemed hurried. "'There is news, Gilliatt!' "'Where is that?' "'At the Brave.' "'What is it?' "'I'm too far off to tell you the story.' Gilliatt shuddered. Is Miss Deruchette going to be married? No, but she had better look out for a husband. What do you mean? Go up to the house and you will learn. And Sieur Landois whipped on his horse. End of chapter 7 and book 4 Recording by Paul Adams www.yawnguy.com